You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am really excited to have Suzanne Park on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called So We Meet Again. And, you know, if you read a lot of a lot of thrillers and crime fiction like I do, sometimes you just need uh, a palate cleanser and a really fun, good time book to you know, beat beat back the summer doldrums and and uh, and and to just enjoy. And so we meet again is one of those books when from the time you open that front cover until you close the back cover, this is a fun, enjoyable read. I know that you're gonna love it just like I do. Welcome to the show, Suzanne. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this. I'm I'm excited to have you, uh, Suzanne. We begin each show with the same question, and that question is. What is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? I don't think that the writer bug hit me until much later in life, but the storyteller bug maybe happened a little bit earlier. Um, I was always a big reader. You'll probably hear that a lot from a lot of authors, but um, uh, where I'm from, it's a small suburb right outside of Nashville, and I was only able to read the books that were available at the library. We just didn't have a ton of money. So, um, you know, my, I guess my ability to read different books and a wide variety of books was limited by whatever that library had to offer. And it was wonderful. The community there was great. The librarians all knew me. They even like had, you know, a new, like a young adult and kids section that was just for children. Um, and then they would tell me where all the new books were and kind of walk me through them. So um, I had a really very positive um, experience when it comes to reading and growing up with a library close to home. Um, but it wasn't maybe until high school, actually earlier than high school, probably in middle school, that I used to just, uh, from a storyteller perspective, I used to take like a beat up microphone and plug it into like a cassette recorder <laughs> And I would just talk for like, <laughs> and record myself. And then when I was done, I'd play back some of it and then I'd, you know, tape right back over it and record it again, you know, whenever I had a new story or some other thing. And I would just make up ridiculous stories to pretend I was like an interviewer and have fake, uh, fake interviewees. It was really, maybe I was setting myself up to someday be a podcaster, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, just I maybe it's also being a middle child with like no you know ability to watch TV or anything that I just did this. Um, but I, I think when I moved um, from uh, when I graduated from high school, we found some of these tapes and I played them back and it was so embarrassing. <laughs> I actually threw them out and I looking back, I should have kept them because they are hilariously embarrassing. It's there's no other word for it. Um, but that's when I kind of really, it, I didn't even like the sound of my voice. I just liked the idea of just talking and telling stories and honing that craft. 
Um, and then later on, I through a long, windy path of toward publication. All, along the way, I ended up doing stand-up comedy for t- ten years uh, because I wanted to be a humor writer, and I didn't know what that would look like or what that could be. So my first entry into writing comedy or writing humor was through stand-up comedy. And from there, I ended up after 10 years realizing, wait, I wasn't going, my end goal was not stand-up comedy. My end goal was actually um, to be a humor writer. And then I had to pause and rethink what I was trying to do career-wise. And then I ended up taking writing classes and I tried a little bit of everything um, from memoir classes to personal essay classes to script writing and somehow ended up deciding to write write fiction and that's kind of how I ended up where I am uh, through a very strange <laughs> windy path I ended up writing books like uh, like the one that's coming out today and I'm excited that um, you know people are starting to see more Asian American voices more diverse voices and that I can be part of that so I have to ask you, um, doing stand-up comedy, and and I've seen some of your stand-up uh, videos. You have a very wry sense of humor. Um, did that sense of humor come through doing dur- doing stand-up? Um, did did you develop that, or is that just kind of your natural storytelling sense? Oh, um, I think if you ask. Probably people growing up with me, they would probably say I. It took a while to develop it. I, I think I was just a very goofy kid. Um, I think well, in fourth grade, I was voted like in their superlatives of my elementary school, um, most likely to be president and most likely to be a clown. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, maybe you can be both. I don't know, but. I remember even then just kind of cutting up and joking around and probably getting into more trouble than I needed to be um, in fourth grade. But um, I I think over the years, my joke writing uh, became something that was a developed craft when I was doing stand-up comedy. But I think the humor and the observational humor that you will see in my book and kind of the way to bring in relatable situations and make them funny. I believe that is something that I've always pointed out or had um, it just it's a natural thing for me. Um, but I, both have become in handy when it comes to fiction writing and novel writing because um, I find that when I do have a something that is similar to a stand-up joke where you have a setup and a delivery of some sort of like punchline, it um, it's a lot of readers seem to um, appreciate that little nod to my past stand-up life. I uh, I have a, a friend, Jay Moore, who's a stand-up uh, comic, and we've talked a lot in the past about um, the difference in doing stand-up and, and writing. And when you're doing stand-up, it's like you have a room full of editors uh, in front of you as you're delivering your material and and maybe not, you know, line editing, giving specific feedback, but you're getting feedback from the audience on whether something's funny, whether something lands or not. And then you, you know, make notes of that and start, you know, the editing process as opposed to being a writer where you spend, you know, the majority of a year 
you know, locked in a room by yourself, you come up with this thing and then, you know, someone comes into uh, an editing role and, and then you start, you know, the uh, that process, you know, way down the line of of the creative process. Um, have you ever thought about the the difference in those two or the 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 difference in dynamic of delivering something in person via stand up as opposed to being a writer? I I have actually I've done a lot of thinking about it during the pandemic um, because I haven't written I used to have a joke book that I would I just had a little notebook that I keep in my purse and I finally just took that out of my purse at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, it also ended up being like uh, story ideas or premises that I thought were kind of funny for either openings of scenes or maybe just the idea for ideas for books. Um, but I took it out of my bag and I was looking through it the other day and I was thinking like, oh, it was just the idea of writing jokes was different. Um, and a lot of it is just the actual writing of the joke where it has to be, you have to have an economy of words. And then um, the nice thing about being a stand-up comic is you can tell your joke your first time and you can see what parts of the joke work. Cause some people there's like people, you know, leaning forward and hear, wanting to hear more about like getting into the joke or there's tittering and a little bit of laughter along the way. Uh, then you deliver the actual punchline. And if it lands, that's the best feeling in the world. And you, again, you get that immediate uh, feedback. And it, But if it also doesn't work, you also get immediate feedback. <laughs> so, um, so you get to kind of experience that. And if you um, have the opportunity, you perform a lot, you can refine the joke. So it ends up, you know, you change a sentence here or there, you change your opener. Um, and then at the end, maybe you change your punchline a little bit. But overall, it is like this, uh, it's a small um, uh, kind of body of words that you can work with in massage. But when you deliver a book, um, you're delivering to one person um, and then maybe an editorial assistant, your editor, editorial assistant, and it's only you guys working in a little bubble. So then when it goes out into the world um, and your agent as well um, may read it, but uh, when it goes out into the world, it's really only had like four audience members. <laughs> <laughs> maybe more but you know not as and then it just goes straight to readers and that's like uh that is a little terrifying to be honest because I've yeah. just done this other process for 10 years where I know even if a joke bombs I can just fix it and um or just trash it right if it's just not working within what I'm trying to do for the entire set so um I feel the pain of um, kind of transitioning from one way of getting feedback to this other way of getting feedback. But I'm also over the 10 years have um, grown my craft in that I, I feel pretty confident about what types of humor works. Um, sure. And then sure. trying to translate that into books. It's not too different, but it is um, a little bit different. What's nice though, I have to say about joke writing, and this is something I learned from my very first time on stage, was when I performed, um, there's a whole backstory of like how I accidentally ended up performing on my very first set. Um, I didn't know I was supposed to perform until 24 hours prior to the the show. Um, <laughs> um, so I performed my that's five minutes. Oh, what's that? I said, that's a bonus. <laughs> So it's like five minutes of material that I had to whip together in 24 hours. 
I performed it and the there was a and it went reasonably well because I invited like a million people that I knew uh, from work and just friends from um, that I knew in the area. And when I, I was like, I'm done, I'm not doing comedy anymore. That was so scary. Walk off the stage. And then one comedian who was a regular there said, you know, you're really, you have some really great stage presence and really great ideas. You just don't have actual jokes. <laughs> so I think back then I was, you know, crafting stories, but not necessarily jokes, and then finally figured out how to do the joke writing part. And now I'm back to writing stories again. Love it. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process, the concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and three acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Right. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let PlotPens help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off PlotPens. PlotPens.com 
Um, Suzanne, I, I love to ask people about where they're from, and there's a there's an interesting thing um, that happens, but people are affected by a, the sense of place and where you're from or where you've spent a lot of time has a way of seeping into the stories that you tell. And sometimes it's because, you know, you, you choose to set stories there and that that's an obvious thing. Um, but there are sometimes more subtle ways where a sense of place comes into a person's uh, storytelling. Being from Nashville, which is uh, a quintessential Southern town um, in a lot of ways, but also a really interesting melting pot uh, in the South. Uh, not only is Nashville the the country music capital of the world, but that that's kind of a, a only a, a sliver of what Nashville is. Nashville is really so much bigger than all that. What do you? How do you? Um, how do you think? What do you think of the way being a Nashvilleian or a Tennessean or a Southerner? Um, how does that play into your sense of storytelling? What a great question. I, for this particular story, um, so we meet again, I wanted it to take place in Nashville because I was writing it actually in the pandemic and um, I wanted to have it be a comfort write as well as be a comfort read for the end, um, you know, the, the end reader. And so when I was thinking, what is comforting to me? I was thinking, okay, um, I love writing about, or I li- love food. So <laughs> that's definitely in the book. Korean food and then Southern food as well uh, made it in there. And then I decided to also have this book take place in Tennessee, specifically in Nashville, because it was to me a comfort place. And, um, you know, I grew up in Tennessee and, and left when I went to college, but my parents just lived there all the way um, till just two, just before the pandemic, actually. They moved out closer to us um, because they were retired and wanted to just be closer to family. Um, but we were visiting them once or twice a year. And every time I went back, uh, Nashville, like many Southern cities, is just growing. Um, and it's a different place now than what I remember growing up, where I remember growing up. And so I feel like um, I wanted to incorporate what I knew, which is, um, you know, living back home and uh, being around, you know, my Korean family, and then also have this Korean church aspect, which I don't (laughs) think I've seen in much literature. Um, I, I believe it's in a David Chang's memoir where he talks a little bit about growing up in a Korean church, but that that also played a part in this because there is a, a Korean community that uh, in Nashville that also centers on the churches there, the Korean churches, and um, people find community and uh, comfort and their own people just through these church communities. And they do a lot within that community, whether it's uh, potluck dinners to actually going on um, these like mini trips and vacations to um, having, you know, vacation Bible school or whatever. And I, um, I wanted to incorporate some of that too, because I just hadn't seen it mentioned. And it's also just part of how I grew up. So I wanted to bring that in as well. As far as storytelling goes, um, I find that um, some of the 
humor that I have, I believe is sort of, I, I don't know if it's quaint, but I, I do like to bring in um, kind of quaint humor as well to balance off the rye and a little bit more punchy humor at times, sure. uh, just to kind of keep it balanced. And I, uh, and I think a lot of that just came from how I grew up and the neighbors I was around and my good friends and their parents who are some, my best friend's parents are hilarious. So I remember thinking like, they just have good old Southern humor. And um, that really stuck with me through all these years. Well, it's, um, we talk a lot about this when uh, when you're talking about thriller writers or crime fiction writers that that you can't just have the reader have their adrenaline just pegged out a hundred percent all the time because no one would enjoy that read and there's no emotional arc. There's 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 no opportunity to let the reader off the hook, uh, so to speak, so that you can then come back in. And, you know, peg that adrenaline out and the the ups and downs of it are what make a, a great read. I guess when when you're dealing with comedy, the, the same sort of thing, if you just were just wry the whole time, it would probably come across as just snarky. And while you might laugh, uh, you know, the first couple of chapters, it would probably get old after a while. There's There's got to be emotional ups and downs. There's got to be biting humor mixed with sweet humor mixed with things we can relate to and and that's what makes an enjoyable experience overall i think i i completely agree and what i'm doing for myself just to challenge myself as an author with every book i do want to see how far i can go from um exploring laughter and humor and also um an emotional journey and an emotional connection um, I think the best stories that I have read in the past have both, and I'm trying to make sure that I am also developing as an author and writer uh, with each book where I push myself and try to get um, explore different emotions and deeper emotions uh, with everything that I, I write. Um, I think some of the best movies that I've seen are make me laugh hysterically and then cry in the next scene. I think that's why a lot of K-dramas are so popular where you really get um, a lot of emotion, but from um, the first, uh, you know, scene, uh, sorry, the first episode you see, you know, some, uh, something, it's kind of like the Pixar uh, effect where, True. you know, something tragic happens and you feel for the character and then you, you know, and you go on their journey with them. Um, I, I really, like that kind of storytelling and I'm trying to push myself to make sure that I um, stretch myself as an author and writer um, with each new project. So the new book, So We Meet Again, we meet the character of Jesse Kim um, and and Jesse is immediately one of these characters that you just you want to root for and you commiserate with her so much. Um, where did she come from? Uh, and and uh, what was the the genesis of this story? I, I love hearing about how stories begin. And I, I know you said that this kind of came out of the pandemic and you were looking for, you know, a, a, a book that could help us sort of take our minds off of that. But how did Jesse come into this and, and how did her story begin? Jesse Kim is a Korean American overworked investment banker and, um, She's on Wall Street, and in the opening scene, <laughs> she's laid off on Zoom. 
And I wanted to, first of all, bring in that part of the pandemic, which is just like, that's an, such an, um, it seems to be a more common way of getting laid off these days. But I really, um, I really wanted to. By the way. What's that? Which is a travesty, by the way. It is. And just, I had friends that that happened to. And I had to, I knew when I heard about this happening to them, I knew I had to somehow incorporate that in the book because I don't think people realize what, maybe on the HR side, what that feels like. And I, I wanted to put that into the book because it's just, as you said, a travesty. And I have several female friends who work in finance, they work on Wall Street and um, over drinks one night, they told me that, um, told me about some of the macroaggressions and microaggressions that they faced in their jobs on a daily basis. And when I left the restaurant that night, I just knew I had to write about this. When um, I first pitched the book to my editor, um, I had intended this to be a workplace comedy where it would take place in Wall Street, in in the job. So you would see the day-to-day, this um, sort of what a female investment banker's day-to-day is like. But then when the pandemic hit, I knew there was no office, the workplace was no longer, and I had to rethink the book and how I wanted to still convey this message that there is still rampant sexism and racism happening on Wall Street, but how can I do that in a way where people would understand that, but also like it it could still be relatable as a story because um, I didn't want it to take place fully in an office anymore. And I had to think, how could I do that? So the story starts in a different place and her experiences, you see that through um, new things that happened to her and her thinking back to her old life. And I feel like that worked for this book, uh, given the, you know, current situation of 2021 pandemic. So after this happens to Jesse, she delivers an epic FU speech to the, to the office and storms out. And, you know, I was getting very, uh, Jerry Maguire vibes, um, <laughs> you know, from this. And, and if you've ever seen Jerry Maguire, then you know that, you know, after this epic, um, pronouncement that he makes then he has to live with uh you know the the gauntlet that he's thrown down and and the same thing happens with jesse and like okay now what um how did you you know when you knew that this was going to come to this sort of head um then where do you take the character from there after that moment i knew I, I've had moments like this at work, maybe not as extreme as Jesse, but you you definitely make some, uh, you know, convey your thoughts very clearly in a public setting and then think afterwards, oh, no, um, I, I did the right thing. But what is what does that mean for me now? And I think when she starts going down the elevator and realizing she's walking out of the building, she just has this oh, no moment where she has to think what am I going to do now? And what do I do? And I feel like that type of uh, feeling is very relatable for pretty much anybody um, that has had to switch jobs or just in their 20s or upper 20s, just the idea that you're on the cusp of turning 30 and you, you know, you see people around you doing different things. 
and you feel like maybe you were supposed to do that or, oh, that person has done the same thing and has, you know, traveled far up the totem, um, the ladder of corporate America. And I am sitting here, uh, you know, just spinning wheels and not really doing anything. And so she, um, she goes home because she wants to save money and moves back in in her childhood bedroom and with her mom and dad. And it's like she just got thrown back 15 years uh, and feels like she's back in high school again in terms of just, oh, my gosh, like I'm literally in my childhood bedroom and I don't know what I want to do. And so she has to start thinking, what does she want to do in life and what does she want to like actually want to do versus feel like she has to do and um, with her parents kind of breathing down her neck, and then she runs into her childhood, childhood nemesis at the Asian grocery store. She <laughs> she thinks he's got it all figured out, and look at me, I'm a big loser, and um, has to think, like, what can I do with the skill set that I have? And she figures things out by trial and error, um, by just uh, listening to some of his advice, but also just... Uh, rekindling some of her old passions and forming a YouTube channel that focuses on Korean fusion cooking and uh, goes from there. And I think when I developed that concept, of course, this is where the humor part comes in. I was like, how can we make this very um, so extreme that it's <laughs> makes it so much worse for the main character. And I thought, <laughs> what can I do except have her mom do a cameo and walk on the set and steal the show? <laughs> and it, and I, when I wrote it, I was like, okay, I think I have literally pushed this character to her fullest, the, the extreme limit. I apologize, but let's see what happens. And uh, it was so much fun to write, but also just, I was like cringing as I wrote it. <laughs> Well, the 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 childhood nemesis what is such a great storyline um, in the book uh, because you know we all have these uh, these ideas and these memories of what childhood was like and and sometimes they may not be exactly true to life but but they're indelible in in uh, you know what makes us uh, who we are and one thing that I love about you know that storyline um when she's uh you know getting to know daniel again and then daniel helping her you know with her youtube channel is that um we all have a story to tell and it's all not um you know the way that others perceive us is not necessarily who we are and that's a that was a great part of the story that i really loved is that that um people are are more than what we expect of them sometimes thank you i when i wrote daniel as a middle school nemesis so it's (laughs) the worst time of childhood right the worst time so her memory of him is just so limiting because she just only knows her life experiences at that time and he was the worst person she could think of and then to bring him back so many years later and have him have all these accomplishments um, she also has heard all these things filtered through other people. And so, um, you know, it's not really until she gets to know him on a one-to-one basis uh, and actually t- deals with him and talks to him and gets to know him and develop a relationship with him. Um, it's not until that that she starts to realize like, oh, he's not as horrible as I thought he was. <laughs> he's not as perfect as I thought he was. And I 
wanted to make sure that that was something that I conveyed because I, I think a lot of people, as you said, have, have dealt with this. And um, whether it's a middle school nemesis or a high school person or, you know, someone after college, you, you deal with these people that you think are um, have a certain perfect life. Maybe it's because it's that that's the way they portray themselves on social media, or you know, you hear hear say that so and so bought like this new car or a new house. Um, I really felt like that is a theme that I enjoyed writing about, but I also felt was um, relatable to most readers, and um, anybody could say like, I know Daniel Kim. I, I know Daniel Choi. He's the guy that I had, um, you know, I was a nemesis with a long time ago. So, um, Suzanne, the the obvious question is, when are you starting up your YouTube channel? <laughs> I've had the question of when am I going to do uh, a Korean fusion cooking show? And also, when can I start buying those ingredients that I talk about in the YouTube videos um, and in in the story, the main character develops these meal supplement kits where um, you have these ready made uh, meal kits that you can buy now, but after a while they get kind of tired and old. And so the main character develops this, these supplementary kits that you can buy and um, they have Korean flavors and Asian flavors. And that is something that apparently that people really want to buy now. So I know there are a couple of uh, companies that offer them, but maybe not in a way uh, that is uh, seen in the book. And I I would love to do a cooking show, maybe not with my mom, but I would love to do a hacking show. Um, I do cook with my mother though. I just cooked her the, with her this weekend, but I don't know if uh, she's she would um, appreciate what goes into a YouTube recording. If if we could get uh, Korean food and a Southern slash soul food mashup channel, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. I do think a lot about, um, so my mom, obviously, uh, she lived in Tennessee for longer than I did. And she came over when she was to the States when she was um, in high school. So she's actually lived in the South for over, you know, longer than I've lived. And a lot of her cooking, I do wonder how much of her Americanized cooking aspects are actually influenced by Southern cooking, because she does love a good meat and three, you know, <laughs> so do I. <laughs> so, but, you know, with hot sauces and kind of just the, you know, how she, how she cooks her, her greenery, things like that. I, I do wonder how much of an influence just her, um, you know, Tennessee uh, life and her cooking experience being um, in the South for so long, how that's affected how she um, creates her dishes. So Suzanne, um, you talked about writing a book during the pandemic. Now that hopefully the world is opening back up, and I know we've got some variants that we're fighting, but um, hopefully we're on the on an upward trend now. Um, as the world is slowly coming back to normal and and lives are returning, um, how are you approaching writing um, now that we're not locked down? My, so I've only known um, the pandemic book world, like meaning I had 
um, and a YA and a an adult debut come out last year. And then I have my sophomore books. Both of them came out this summer. And so I've only lived life in the pandemic as far as author life goes. Um, and I had to write two books in the pandemic, um, both of them last year during probably the worst parts of 2020. I'm very optimistic. I wonder how it'll affect the comedy part. Um, because again, these two books that I released this year, the YA and the adult, they were both comfort writes and com hopefully comfort reads. Um, my books last year were a little bit punchier and they just had um, a little bit more of a biting humor. So I'm wondering how that will affect the actual comedic part. And then I'm really looking forward to being able to write outside of my house, specifically outside of my kitchen table, because uh, when the pandemic hit, I got booted from every single place because of distance learning. And uh, my husband has a lot of conference calls, so I could just hear him. So I just migrated around the house and I just ended up next to the kitchen. So at the very minimum, hopefully I won't eat as many snacks, but I'm hoping that uh, if I can kind of, uh, you know, um, figure out where my new writing space is and actually go to, um, I used to write in cafes and also write at the library. I will love to have that time back because I think that really just helped me just move um, by being in a different place, just help me um, write differently, even just have more inspiration and just be around actual humans. <laughs> we will definitely be watching uh, for what comes next. I, I know that it's going to be amazing, whatever it is. So We Meet Again is available everywhere now when you're hearing this. You can grab it in Kindle edition or paperback or audiobook. However you like to consume books, you can get it in the format that you love. There's going to be links to it in the show notes of this episode or run out and support your local bookstore and uh, and, and let's let's help bookstores stay viable in, uh, in these uncertain times. For sure. Suzanne, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Online, they can find me on my website at SuzannePart.com. Um, I'm more active on uh, Instagram these days, so that's at Suzanne Park, and Twitter. I have the same um, same ID, so it's Suzanne Park as well. And then I'm also on Facebook as Suzanne Park Comedy. Um, I didn't want to give up my comedian webpage, so I just transformed it into a um, to a co comedian slash author page. So that's where they can find me there. Love it. We'll put links to those places in the show notes as well. Suzanne, we're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of So We Meet Again. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book Two. By Jason Ansbach and Nick Cole. Narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter 1. The Army of the Dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51. 
a one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nano-plague, destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous P.F.C. Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us, Claymore Mines, the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne, had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush, only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymores' sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us, and an early one at that but there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield, other darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there and I was sweating. Not because of fear, no, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the calm as he detonated the mines, and eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons, warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages, worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales, green and tarnished, stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some, 
rotting boots, helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts, beads and charms dangling from bone wrists, enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here, draped about the spine where the throat should be where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence. Malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now. Except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical, yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.